Let's not put all this in the, uh, on the uh, tape this morning or the CD, whatever the thing is. Thank you. Well, good morning. <clears throat> good to see you here this morning. You know, thank you so much for not being intimidated by the weather and by the fact that the Saints are going to play at noon. I don't have anything against watching the Saints at noon. My wife will be, uh, would not be able to be pried away from the television while the Saints are on. Uh, we love to watch the Saints win. We hope they win today. We hope they go to the playoffs. We hope they win the playoffs. Oh, be quiet. Naysayer, naysayer. <laughs> this is a godly house in here. And we hope they win the Super Bowl. But what we don't hope is that they become an idol to us. And what they do and things like that of the world begin to interfere with what God is doing in our lives. Amen. There's the big difference. <clears throat> so thank you for being here. How many of you have basically, I don't mean you haven't missed a Sunday or two here or there because that happens. How many of you have been here through the 10 or so weeks, whatever it has been for the Romans 1 through 8 study? Okay. I hope that uh, this study has helped enlarge your view, understanding, comprehension of the Word of God, and not only in Romans, but the whole Word of God. Because remember what our emphasis, hopefully being led by the Spirit, has been. Whatever we read in the Word, whatever book we're reading, or even passage, it doesn't really matter. Nothing in the Word of God stands alone on its own. But every book of the Bible is, if you would, think of a 66-piece puzzle. 66-piece puzzle. And what piece of the puzzle is unnecessary for the completion and the fulfillment and the total view of the puzzle? Well, you can't say that. What piece of the puzzle is really more significant than another piece? And really, you can't say that, although there are certain pieces that lay groundwork and move issues along more clearly than others. And then there are pieces that bring about the revelation, the culmination of God's purpose. But in that, we never say one piece is mostly significant or more significant than the others because God's Word is totally, completely and equally significant. And so as we study Romans, or you study Ezekiel, you'll study Deuteronomy, or Isaiah, whatever it is, we want to begin to develop a vision, a view of the Word that causes us to see it as absolutely comprehensive. That this is a word, one word from God, uttered from the beginning to the end. All of it revealing God himself, who he is in himself, and revealing his character, how he is in himself, and revealing his purpose for having created man and how he achieves that purpose, especially after the fall in Genesis 3, 6. And so as we have studied at least the first eight chapters of Romans, we hopefully saw that Paul is writing to the church, and in this writing to the church at Rome, 
he is drawing upon his understanding, his background, his learning, his tradition, his steepness in the Word of God. Because remember, Paul knew all of the Old Testament. Probably he had, like many Pharisees, huge portions of it memorized. So this man knew the Hebrew. He knew the Greek. This man was a walking biblical encyclopedia. And so what he is doing when he writes Romans or Thessalonians or any of the letters that he's writing, or any of the ministry that he's bringing forth by the Spirit, he's drawing upon what God has already said, what God has been doing with an understanding of the place of the church at that particular time and where that church and where the church is to be going, what the purpose is and what the fulfillment is. So it's our hope that this is what's happening in us, that when we now open the Word of God, we will begin to see connectivity, connectiveness from beginning of Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 22 and see it as a grand revelation of this grand God of ours. Amen. So this morning, what we are proposing to do, and I've brought our resident theologian along with me, <laughs> is to hopefully entertain some questions, even in some comments. You know, you may even um, want to have uh, an explanation or amplification of something that has been said that you haven't understood clearly enough. Or perhaps there's just something that has been said in here, we've learned in here, that has triggered some thoughts or what questions about anything else related to the Word of God. And so we don't want to restrict ourselves to the teaching that we have had in Romans 1 through 8, although I would imagine that would be the preponderance of the conversation this morning. So Evan has agreed to be here with us. He's even brought the youth group here, those who have already come this morning. Hey, youth, we're glad y'all are here. We're glad you're here. We love you being here. We would just like you to be here every Sunday, but we know that there has to be a separate group. So, you know, how I am, I want everybody in here. So thanks to Evan, he said, sure, he'd be glad to do this, would love to be a part of this. So as we begin this morning, by raised hands, let's begin having some questions. Hopefully you've written some things down or some comments that we can relate to. Anyone who wants to begin? Everybody's pointing to someone at a table over there, I see. I see the bath lady pointing, going, going that, and then you're pointing to Alexandra? No, y'all don't have to ask questions. Okay. We have a question over here. You want to put the microphone so we can hear that? And then, you just repeat the question. Oh, okay. We'll repeat the question. <clears throat> Looking at Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Okay. Romans 1, 20. Romans 1, Talking about the invisible attributes of God. Mm -hmm. I got asked that this week kind of a pygmy question again. So I think a lot of us get asked, what about those who have never heard? What about those who... Some from y'all, whether I know when you go to Hebrews, some like when you go back to those who've been declared righteous. 
saying everybody before Jesus never, nobody could be in heaven. I've, I've been asked that before. So I just kind of want to use Romans. Could you put Romans 20 in some kind of context evangelistically for somebody asking me, like, what about those who've never heard, basically? Yeah, the, the question is how do we relate Romans chapter 1, the argument that Paul makes in verse 20, specifically from verse 18 onward, to what about people who haven't heard the gospel? Um, and so what Paul's doing in, in Romans chapter 1, I know Pastor Peter has taught you guys well along these lines, is he begins to establish the argument in verse 18 that all of humanity is under the wrath of God. So he's presenting the problem that then he's able to provide the solution beginning in chapter 3 in the gospel. The gospel addresses our fundamental problem, which is sin. And the reason sin is a problem is because God's wrath is against sin. And he wants to show us in chapter 1 that all of humanity stands condemned. And he's beginning to, to distinguish Jew and Gentile starting in, in chapter 1. He, uh, in verse 16, he kind of gives his thesis statement for the letter. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so he's going to teach that Jew and Gentile have a common way of salvation. So this is going to also address a little bit your question about Old Testament believers. That there is one Savior for Jew and for Gentile alike. And the reason there's one Savior is because there's one problem for Jew and Gentile alike. And so what he does is he deals with Gentiles in Romans 1. And then in chapter Two, he shows that Jews are sinners as well. Just because you have the law of Moses, just because you have the covenants, doesn't mean you're okay. And he gets at their self-righteousness. He says, you look down your nose on other people, well, guess what? You've, you've committed one sin, at least, self-righteousness. Therefore, you've broken all of God's, God's law. But in chapter 1, he basically is, is trying to show that mankind, all of the, the pagan Gentile world, even though they don't have the law of God given them on stone tablets... They have God's moral order inscribed on the conscience of their heart, and therefore they are without excuse. So what he's not doing in chapter 1, and we'll look in chapter 10 where he does provide how unbelievers can be saved. He's not teaching how people can be saved in chapter 1. He's teaching how people can be condemned. Um, and this is how he says it. Verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth for... What can be known about God is plain to them. Why? Because they just discovered it on their own. No, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that are made. Okay? So what's his reasoning here? So they are without excuse. They are inexcusable. They are without a defense is the word there. There will be nobody who will be able to stand before God on the last day and say, well, if only you showed me yourself, then I wouldn't have sinned. And God will say, are you kidding me? Have you seen the Grand Canyon? Have you seen the Himalayas? Have you seen the galaxy that we live in? They scream about my existence. They testify that there is a creator who is worthy of, our, of devotion. And if you look, and then he goes into chapter 2 and he makes this argument, if you look at your own conscience, then you see that there is a right and there is a wrong and there is a God who is his to be obeyed. Verse 12 of chapter 2, 
For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. All right, he's talking about Gentiles there. They don't have the law explicitly given to them from Mount Sinai. But they have the law in, in another sense, and this is what he's showing them. They'll perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law, under the law of Moses, will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And he doesn't mean that we're justified by works by that phrase. What he's saying is, if you're going to be perfect before God, you've got to obey God's law. You can't just have the law like the Jewish people, priding themselves because, yep, well, we've got Moses. Well, have you obeyed perfectly everything that Moses has to say? Well, if you haven't, you stand condemned before God. So then he says in verse 14, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they don't have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Now notice, that's the work of the law. It's not the work of the gospel. It is what is right and what is wrong is inscribed upon our consciences. It doesn't tell us how we can be saved or that Jesus has come. We, no matter how deep you look within, you don't find the, that good news. It needs to be proclaimed to you. And so what, what Paul's establishing in Romans 1 and Romans 2 is that Jew and Gentile alike, they're condemned before God whether they have God's law or whether they have what's called general revelation, God's revelation of his moral character in the created order and in mankind made in his image. This goes back to Genesis 1.26 in particular. Mankind's made in the image of God. That's what he's describing in Romans 2. Therefore, they know, you know what's right and what's wrong. And you know that you failed to do what's right. And you know that you deserve to be punished for that. But then in chapter, flip over to chapter 10. And I'll try not to make this too long-winded of a response. Because I know he's, he's taught through all these things already. Um, but in chapter 10, he gives kind of the logic for missions. And this is how he argues. In, in chapter 10, verse... 10, he says, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction, there, there's his common thread, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then here is his logic of missions. How then, verse 14, Will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And the implied answer is, they won't. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Okay, what about those who have never heard? His implication is, they won't believe. Believing the gospel is a response to good news that is proclaimed to you. Therefore, you need to hear it, and then not just hear it, you need to take it into your heart and respond with faith. There's a response that is required to the gospel. And then verse, uh, rest of verse 14, And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Implication, they won't. And so he's saying, get to preaching. There are lost people who need the gospel proclaimed to them. They will not hear unless you tell them. So he, he places tremendous human responsibility on us, even in the midst of Romans 9 through 11, where he's exalting in the sovereignty of God over salvation. He says, if people are going to respond to the gospel, they need to hear the gospel and they need to believe in the gospel. And so Romans 1 is not saying we can be saved apart from that. 
It's saying that, that we are told that we need the gospel, but we still need it proclaimed to us. You want to add anything to that? Let me give you... Uh, did you understand what he just said? Uh, this is a common question. And the question basically occurs, especially among Christians, among non-Christians, the question occurs because they don't know the Word of God, know the heart of God. You understand? That's why non-Christians ask the question. And so often the question is asked not in order to be sympathetic, but in order to judge God. That's a large part of the reason why unbelievers ask this kind of a question. How can you believe in it? To judge God. But when a believer asks it, again, there's a weakness in the understanding that salvation is of the Lord. And it's His purpose. It's His choice. It's His eternal plan. Remember before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4, in Christ. So God moves through revelation. He moves by the Spirit. And He begins wherever His people are however they are, whyever they are, whatever the condition, he begins to send the Spirit throughout the world to collect his people, Old Testament, New Testament, all of them believing in him. So <clears> the <throat> Romans 1.20, remember in Genesis 15, Abraham says, how? How am I supposed to know? How am I supposed to be certain that you are going to give me a son from my body? Remember that? And what the Lord said, go outside and look up at the heavens. And when Abraham looked at the natural revelation that Evan was talking about from Romans 1, 19 and 20. It says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him, accounted to him as righteousness. Ah, oh, yeah, I see it. I see it. One quick uh, um, uh, illustration, I think I've given this before. <clears throat> Years ago in this church, one Sunday night, a missionary came who had been to Ecuador. You remember, I think I've shared this. And so as he was telling us the story. He said they went back into all this trail, bushes and all that, being led by the little pygmy people, the little you know, Indian folks. And it doesn't matter whether it's Ecuador, Africa, China, it makes no difference where it is. And so they came to the village and everything was assembled and the missionary began to preach the gospel. And everything was fine until the missionary mentioned the name Jesus. Any of you here that Sunday night? Or any of you go back that far? And when he mentioned the name of Jesus, he said, one man, boom, pow, oh, just, he thought, uh-oh, what have I done? I mean, this man was going wild. At the end of the service, got a hold of the fellow, talked to him and said, what's going on? What's going on? The man said, every day for five years, I've been going out to the clearing and I could see the valley below. And he said, every day for five years, I would say, I know you're real. And I want to know your name. What was going on? God had put in his heart a revelation that he exists and that he is this man's God. Remember Cornelius and Lydia and all these other folks. There was something going on. God was preparing them. And God brought the message of the gospel, the name of Jesus Christ, at the name of Jesus. And this man was saved and others, I'm sure. So no one was with, is without excuse, and no one's an atheist. No atheists, no people without excuse. Why are not people saved? Because they don't want to be. If they wanted to be, they couldn't be. Jesus said, 
Luke 19, for what is impossible with man is what? Possible only with God. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Old Testament people were saved the same way as New Testament people. Old Testament people were believing that God would save them when he said he would. That, you know, Abraham believed God. He believed, I'm going to give you a son. This was a, an activity of his faith in God's person and in the word of God and the faithfulness of God and the goodness of God, etc., etc. So Abraham didn't rely on his own works. He tried a few things that didn't work. Remember, he was growing in faith just like everyone else. And not relying on his own abilities, his own works, his own whatever, his own righteousness. He relied on God. Romans uh, where is it? Um, 418. Hoping against hope. Abraham believed, even though his body was as good as dead. He still believed. And God, of course, brought forth the son Isaac and, you know, the whole issue of uh, 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 the seed of the woman being in Abraham's line, you know, will come from Abraham as one of the children of Abraham. So Old Testament believers were saved the same way as New Testament believers in God's work of saving them. The difference is we know the name of the Savior is Jesus. They didn't know the name of the Savior, but they knew that God was the Savior. Forward in faith and the others back to the cross in faith. Yeah, but so both sides are saved by faith. God always saves people unilaterally by grace through faith. Amen? God saves everyone wherever they are, wherever they have been, whatever side of the cross they're on. God always saves only one way. Unilaterally, by grace, God saves someone. God moves. God reveals. God gives an understanding. Frank prayed this morning about, you know, the eyes of their understanding change their hearts. Ezekiel 36, remember we saw all that. And brings about that work of salvation and revelation and with it the desire and ability called faith to receive that work. God always does it this way. On either side of the cross, if you would. Sherry? Loud so I can hear you. You got that one? God is not a respecter of persons. And now remember, we only have 35 more minutes to go. I like doing that because I'm the one that's normally on that side of the comment. Um, So the question is, uh, how do you reconcile the impartiality of God with the election of God? And uh, it, it goes with what we believe Scripture teaches about election that the basis for God's choice is not located in the person in any way, but in himself. And so when Scripture talks about God not being a respecter of persons, he means God does not treat individuals differently on the basis of what is in them. And if you look in the context of those kinds of statements, and and one in particular is in, in the book of James, uh, I believe it's chapter 4, maybe, chapter 3, where, actually it's the beginning of chapter 2, sorry, I was wrong on both accounts, um, where James is calling the church, don't, don't treat the poor different than you treat the rich, 
because God doesn't show any partiality. And so you, you look in the surrounding context of those verses, it has to do with God doesn't treat rich people better than poor people. He doesn't treat, ultimately, in his economy, he doesn't treat Jewish people better than Gentile people. So with respect to the distinguishing marks in them, male, female, slave, free, so God totally obliterates the world's social system that says these people should be on the top and these people should be on the bottom, and he is near to the lowly in heart. He is near to the weak. He is near to those who need him. But the reason why election doesn't contradict that thought is because God's election is never based in any of those factors. It's based in the pleasure of his will, and that's how Ephesians 1 describes it. So when he says in Romans 9, Jacob I love, and Esau I've, I've hated, and he's quoted, quoting from, uh, I believe, the end of Malachi there, uh, what he's saying there, that he, he later on goes to, to say, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. In other words, it's located in God. It's not located in them. And we see that clearly played out in the life of Jacob and Esau, is that Jacob <laughs> he was no better than Esau. He was the heel grabber. He was a deceiver. He was a conniver. And God chose him. And, and even in that choice, it is an illustration of God's impartiality because when the older serves the younger, that turns upside down the world system. The firstborn, typically, in ancient Near Eastern culture, would receive the rights and honor. God gives it to the secondborn. So he's not being a respecter of Esau or Jacob as to what's in them. But it is, as Paul says in Romans 9, that his purpose of election uh, might work. There's two other verses I'd, I'd share with you. And these kinds of things are always puzzling. And although Evan, uh, I would agree with everything he said, there is still in our minds that element of but, but, but. So I'll give you Deuteronomy 29, 29. That would be when we have questions like this and we give the clearest biblical answer that we have been given to us and hopefully we've given it correctly and clearly to you and there's always or so often going to be in our minds but 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 Deuteronomy 29 29 what is that the secret things the things that God has not revealed he's revealed some things and he's revealed even in some of those things just some of the some things and so here we have an issue that he's revealed something, but even in the revelation of that something which he has revealed, he's not revealed all of that something. He's withholding because he hasn't given us, for whatever purpose, total understanding of his divine will and his ways. So what do we do with those questions? But, but, but I, uh, we trust God. We take what we know of God biblically, experientially, communically, you know, among us. We take what we know and we stand on that. And we don't venture into the other areas in a way that would begin to judge and question God's integrity and his truthfulness. You can think about them, you can talk about them, but we have to be very careful how we handle those things because God being infinite. Then there's one other thing about the impartiality, Galatians 3.28. Remember, no male and female, Greek, barbarian, all of what? All of one in Christ. Mm-hmm.
Yeah. Okay, well, we, well, we go back to James, <clears throat> and you also remember in Luke where, I've forgotten where it is, it's you know, around Luke 13 or so, <clears throat> where Jesus is saying, you know, king gives a banquet, and you come on in, and be careful, don't take the best seat, because if you do, you may have to be lowered and whatever. The king is the one who decides where everybody sits. The king doesn't make decisions on this person has money, that person doesn't. This person is intelligent, that person isn't. James is talking about, again, these social distinctions. So how are we to act? We're to handle, I think, everyone with whom we come in contact. No matter who that person is, no matter what the sin. You know, this is what grieves me. It seems as if today there are certain categories of sins that Christians really are repelled. So I will mention one. <clears throat> homosexuality. <laughs> and we go bananas over that particular sin. Lesbianism. And it's almost as if that's a no-no we can't touch. They have leprosy. It doesn't matter what the sin, what the color, what the background, what the anything is of a person. We must approach every living human being on the face of the earth with the same gospel, with the same desire that that person be saved, with the same trusting in God's power to save. The only ignorance that we have is this. Is that person going to become a child of God not based on the person's sin or anything about the person, but upon the elective decree of God. And so, no partiality. We deal with everyone this way in the gospel. Now, does that mean that, socially speaking, we have to be embracing and participating in all these things? Of course not. But I believe that the partiality that James is talking about and Jesus is talking about is this partiality that was very evident among, you know, the Jewish Pharisees and others where some were elevated and some were not. Remember the Samaritan who picked the man up who had been uh, attacked on the road in Luke, and he picked him up and took him to the inn and so on. And so you have these, these, these prejudices among people, and we all have them. Anybody without prejudice in here? I, don't, I, I, am, I am unprejudiced. I treat everybody badly equally. So I can't be accused of being prejudiced. Does that help? We care for everyone in the gospel as potential children of God. Would you do that? Would we look past the sin, the color, the culture, the ethnicity, and see every person, is this person one whom God will save through the death and the resurrection of Christ by faith? Yes, ma'am. That's a very perceptive question. Um, so, did you want to answer this question? Well, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter. Uh, you're talking about foreknowledge. Whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, Romans 8.29. Remember that? So what they say is, whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed. 
He saved those whom he foreknew. The foreknowledge is that word from epinosis, you know, to know ahead of time. And so what often people who believe that it is man who calls upon God and initiates the call, thus prompting and moving God to save. Do you understand the background? It's those who believe that man initiates the call, thus prompting and moving God because of the initiating call and prayer, please come save me, that then God decides to do that. That this is what God saw. He saw Jimmy one day when he was 15 years old say, I need to be saved. Jesus, save me. Ah, I see that. Therefore, now I can save Jimmy. That's what is understood often. The word foreknowledge, it doesn't say whom, he says, whom he foreknew. It doesn't say what he foreknew. The word foreknowledge is a relational term. And I think the best scripture I can give you to, for that is 1 Peter 1.20. 1 Peter 1.20, where Peter is talking about God has foreknown Christ. It is that same word foreknow. And God has foreknown Christ, obviously forever, because they have both of them are part of the Godhead. So it is a relational term of intimacy, of relationship, of unity, of oneness, of love, of commitment, of all that. And in that, that is the foreknowledge that Paul is talking about in Romans 1.29. Actually, 28 to 30 is, you know, kind of the whole little section there. That's the relationship that Paul is talking about. So whom God has relationally decided to know in his own mind, in his own heart, before the foundation of the world, those are the ones whom he moves upon at the particular time, proper time, through the ministry of the gospel by the Spirit, to be saved. And they will be saved. Because no one whom God moves upon by his Spirit and births them into the kingdom refuses. No one does. All are saved. Otherwise, the grace and the work of God is thwarted by man's will. And man's will doesn't thwart the will of God. Does that, does that help? So the, the issue isn't foreknowledge of activities. It's foreknowledge of person. They should know it from the whom is a relative pronoun. You remember that objective relative pronoun mess that you got in the English grammar? But if you go to 1 Peter 1.20, you see the same word there. And obviously, it's not God knowing Christ because what Jesus would do. It's who Jesus is to God. It's who we always have been to God in his decision, in his purpose, in his decrees. Anything else you want to say, Annie? Uh, well, just two thoughts. One would be that um, it's different from how we often understand it, but if you look at foreknowledge in the Bible as an attribute of God, it's never portrayed as God peering into the future to discover something. Uh, it's never a crystal ball form of of foreknowledge, fortune-telling sort of a thing. It's always related to God's knowledge of His own will. He knows what He wants to do, therefore He knows what He will do, therefore He knows what's going to happen in the future. And so you just see that in any passage that discusses God's knowledge of the future, it's always connected to His sovereignty. It's not connected to information that He finds out about through seeing in the future. Uh, the other thing would be the passages that describe election um, what you have to do to get at the idea that the reason God chooses people is because he saw ahead of time that they would choose him first, and therefore he chooses them. Well, 
you don't find that anywhere. What you have to do is you have to take it and you have to wedge it in between the verses and read it in. And then when you do that, what you do is you make everything going in the reverse direction that it's intended to go. And so John chapter 6, uh, where Jesus himself is teaching this doctrine, he says in verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. All right, so you see the, the causal relationship there. The Father gives a people to the Son. And as a result of that, every person the Father gives to the Son will come to the Son. It doesn't happen in the other direction. It doesn't start with people coming to the Son and then, okay, well, I'll give these people to you because they've decided of their own will, first and foremost, decisively to do this. And then you just, as you read through the rest of the passage, we won't take the time to do that. But every statement has to be flipped around in order for that other idea to make sense. There's one other passage I'd like to relate to. I think it's John 10, 27. I think that's the verse. <clears throat> Typically, if, if I would say this, you know, people are not saved because they don't believe. I think we would go with that. But what does Jesus say in 10, 27? He doesn't say, you are not my sheep because you do not believe. He says, you do not believe because you're not my sheep. And so often it's, it's turned the other way around. Well, you're not a sheep of God because you're not believing. You had to believe in order to become a sheep of God. No. He's talking about, remember the shepherd calls, they know my voice, they hear my voice, they come out, remember, in John 10. Because I'm the good shepherd. He's talking about that in that particular passage. He says, you don't believe. Why? Because you're not my sheep. Well, since when did we become a sheep? Before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation. One more question, and we'll close it down. Okay, well, free will. This is going to take all night, but we'll try to do it in two minutes. And then I'll let Evan continue, and, and then he'll get in trouble for keeping you all out of sermon. Uh, free will. Anytime anyone, whether a believer or non-believer, wants to talk about free will, you first, first, absolutely first, you must define your terms. What does free mean? What does will mean? Because there's a lot of supposition here that is not biblically taught. Free means what? Unencumbered uninfluenced, unmanaged, you know, not, not anything coming upon it and making it. Free means totally divested of anything that would in any way inhibit or encumber that will to do what it wants to do. Only God has free will. Only God is within himself unencumbered, uninfluenced, unmanaged, unmanipulated by anything or everything external to himself. God is moved only according to his own purpose, his own character, his own will. So he is the only person, if you would, of the being in all creation who has free will. Man has never had free will. Remember 2 Timothy 2 25 I think it is that we are captured by Satan to do his will we are slaves to sin we've never had free will we are only free within the context of choosing things which are binding us or controlling us or leading us 
So before Christ, we never had the ability to freely call upon the name of the Lord because our wills were shut down by Satan. He is the God of this world. Remember in uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, or uh, the whole world lies in the lap of the evil one. Remember 1 John 5, 19. So everything is under the control of Satan. We don't have any free will, Donnie, as such to do that. When we're saved, God doesn't manage our will. He, if you would, unshackles our will from the chains of sin and slavery and bondage to Satan. He unshackles our if you would, opens the chains or unlocks the gate or whatever you want to say. And when that happens, he touches our will so that now we freely choose him. Why do we freely choose him? Because now we want to. Before we didn't want to and we couldn't anyway. And so our wills are then, if you would, set free from the shackles of slavery to sin to be those who are obedient to Christ. Once we become obedient to Christ, then we become the servants of Christ. And I suppose in a way, the believer is the only one who has now the ability to either sin or not to sin. Where the unbeliever never had an ability not to sin. You never had that. But now in Christ, I can choose either to sin or not to sin. Unbelievers have no such ability. They're locked down. Does that help? Uh, by the way, a lot of this stuff about... If any man, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Who said that? Somebody said that somewhere in Romans what? 10, 13. Remember, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That statement is taken by many. And this is what they say. Therefore, in order to call upon the name of the Lord, you have to have the internal innate ability in yourself to do that. Otherwise, God would not have said that. And it's a presupposition, as Evan said, walk, working backward. So why do people call upon the name of the Lord? Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. I will put my spirit in them. I'm going to take out the old, old what? Stony heart and give them a heart of flesh. Once that happens, I'm born again, remember? And now I call upon the name of the Lord, which is my embracement of his having embraced me. Anything else? Uh, just quickly, I would, I would add this. Since you mentioned engaging an unbeliever about this, I, th I think it's, I think it's a, appropriate and good to be totally unembarrassed about all aspects of Christian theology when you are engaging an unbeliever. You don't need to hide away, yeah, well, we really believe such and such. But at the same time, uh, what you emphasize and what gets brought into the conversation uh, probably changes given the setting. And in, in general, I think just as a matter of principle, the doctrine of election and the doctrine, you know, issues related to our will and response to the gospel, for the most part, I think that's something that we are informed about. Having been saved, God tells you, now, let me show you how that happened. Let me show you that you weren't really the one doing that. You, you, you responded, absolutely. You chose me, but here's why. And Jesus says in John 15, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to bear fruit. But I think most of the conversation with unbelievers is going to be not so much in the category of divine sovereignty as it is in the category of human responsibility. Believe in Jesus. You need to turn. You need to respond to this good news or you will perish Stop asking me about free will. Stop asking me about predestination. Believe in him already. 
uh, I think that would be our tone. And I love the way that Charles Spurgeon uh, describes it. He says that as you enter heaven, you know, above the, above the mantle, the doorway, is whosoever will may come. And then as you pass through the threshold and you turn back and you look and you see chosen before the foundation of the earth. So I think that's something primarily that we discover as we've gone through the doorway and not something we need to decide looking in, am I going to do this? Just in closing, what we do here, and, and some of you have been in Alpha retreats and other things, uh, when we minister the gospel, you were never going to hear us say, you don't have free will, you can't do this. We're not going to do that. We would do that in this context of a believer's meeting. So what we'll say, we'll preach the gospel and share the gospel and implore people. And we'll emphasize, what do you want to do in response to this gospel? What is happening on the inside of you? What are your emotions, your feelings? Are you wanting, yes, I want to be forgiven. I want to, then do it. You see, we put it on the basis of what they want. Because thems who are wanting or thems whose will, wills have been unlocked and God is bringing them into the kingdom now through a change of will. So we always emphasize that, but we're not going to tell them, you say before you were under captivity, Satan and sin. We're not going to do any of that kind of thing. So make sure when you share the gospel, you don't do that. Unless the Holy Spirit leads you to. Now, it could be that God would actually lead you to do that and then you do it. Well, uh, thank you so much for being a part of this, this uh, time of teaching. Uh, we, we will begin next week at this particular time of having a time of prayer on Sunday morning. So if you would gather this time rather than at the 8 o'clock time, be in prayer. Uh, we are going to be teaching the next series will be a study of, how do we say it? how to read the Bible, the issues of studying the Word of God, the necessity of the Word, the uh, effect of the Word. And uh, we're not quite sure exactly what date we'll begin, so just be looking for that. Don't, you know, we're not going to say, well, the next Sunday, the two Sundays, whatever. We're still trying to determine how the Lord wants to lead in that. So let me close in prayer by saying again, thank you so much for being here. Father, Father, what an incomparable blessing and work of grace this is that we who were the worst have become to you the best because you have given the best father thank you for your grace and father should there be someone here in this room this morning who hasn't said yes to the gospel, to Jesus, to the forgiving work of Jesus on the cross and the saving and giving of his righteousness to us in the resurrection. Father, if someone here has not said yes, and this morning they realize, that person realized, oh, I want that. My soul was burning. I, I desire that. Father, this morning, cause them to say yes. For that desire is your saying, come on home. And they'll be like the, the young man in Luke 15, verse 17. He came to his senses and he said, I will arise. I'm going home to be with my father. Father, do that work. If there's someone in here this morning who doesn't know you yet and who is now beginning to know you by faith. Father, bless uh, 
Uh, Evan, this morning, Father, as he ministers your word, minister through him, to him powerfully by your spirit, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you.